Well, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Also with you. Only three weeks in, you're already getting it. That's great. Well, in a moment, we're going to turn to uh, Proverbs 21. If you want to turn ahead, you certainly can. But before we do that, I want to quick bring some folks up to speed in case you've been up north or something like that. Um, we've been, we are right now today in part three of a four-part series. We've been looking at this idea of margin. And if you're not familiar with the, the, the concept, um, here's a definition that we've been working from. We also, if you're new, we've got a, a note page that we keep inside your worship folder. Uh, and we encourage you to, to write these things down um, like this. Margin is the amount of time beyond what is necessary. So if you need this much and you have, let's see, you need this much. I had it last week. You need this much. You have this much. This is your margin, right? Margin is having more than, than is necessary. And we talked that first week about what happens when you don't have margin and how that can be a really stressful place to be when you don't have what you need or, or enough in case things don't go as planned. And then last week, we specifically applied this to time. And one of the things that we pointed out was when, when time margin decreases, what happens to stress? It increases. And how, how true is that? Well, here's the question we're going to wrestle with today. There's a place to write this in your notes as well. Today's question, what does God-honoring financial margin look like? What does God-honoring financial margin look like? Now, most Americans, and, and we know this, most Americans, they live at their lifestyle limit. Most Americans don't have a lot of margin when it comes to finances. Most of us, if we make this much, this is, this is the, the lifestyle we, we, we try to live with. So there's not a lot of margin, financial margin in America it's normal to live without financial margin, which means a lot of other things that are normal too in, in America. Financial stress is normal. It is normal. I was thinking about having a show of hands, but I just thought, no, I'm not going to put us in that spot. But if we did that, if we had you raise your hand to say how many of you regularly feel financial stress... <laughs> They would be going up. Some of them couldn't resist, and even we're showing them up right now. Uh, yes, hands would go up. And what would be interesting is if we looked at that and looked around the room at all different economic levels, that's the case. It's not just people who are in one income bracket. At all levels, people are feeling financial stress. It is normal in America to feel that stress. It is normal in America to be actually be working longer and harder than we were 10 years ago. Most Americans are working longer hours and harder than they were um, 10 years ago. As we're going to see in a few minutes, debt is normal. Debt is, is the given in our society. And because of the stress, because of the extra work or the lack thereof, because of debt, one of the things that you see that happens is without the financial margin, there's all kinds of tension in families. And so much of the, the, the tension that happens in households is directly related to financial margin. So this is a, a, a big deal. This is normal. And I don't want that normal. I'd imagine you don't either. I'd imagine this is an area where you want to be abnormal. You don't want to be like most Americans. Most Americans don't have much money left, if any, when a great cause comes their way, something they're compelled, they want to give towards it. Most Americans, they look at their checkbook and go, I wish I could, but I can't. I can't. And most Americans, when an unexpected expense comes their way, they're, they're, they wonder how they're going to pay for it. We don't want that. You want to have margins so that when these things happen, we can respond to them. 
And I believe God wants that for us too. I believe this is an area he wants us to be abnormal. There's a number of them, but this is, I think, one of them he wants us to be abnormal, to not just fit in with everyone else. So here's that scripture I want us to start with. And when I referenced earlier, this is out of Proverbs chapter 21. There's a lot of great advice in Proverbs. um, And this is one of them. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says this. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise person's dwelling, but a foolish person devours it. Now, let me point out what this is not saying. This is not saying wise people invest in gold and BP. That's not what this is saying. It's, it's saying something different. This is actually a, a scripture that speaks to margin. That's what it's, it's speaking to. Uh, here's here's an example that comes to my mind as I think about margin and, 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 and our society. Many of you will recognize this guy. Uh, if you know who this is, shout it out. Warren Sapp. I re, uh, not too long ago, I saw in the news that Warren Sapp was declaring bankruptcy. This is one of the, the best players at his position ever in the NFL, making all kinds of money. In fact, it was interesting that while he was declaring bankruptcy, his salary at that time, or his, the money that was coming in, his average household income, was $115,000 a month. Let that sink in for a second. Warren Sapp was making $115,000 a month and he was declaring bankruptcy. This, 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 he just fits America. He fits America. In fact, one of the, the counterintuitive statistics that you'll see if, if you study these things, and people do, is when it comes specifically to Christians and giving, there's this myth that says, well, if I make more, I'll give a higher percentage of in- my income. You know what the statistics show? In, in, among Christians... Christians in lower income brackets give a higher percentage of their income than Christians in upper income brackets. So this is, a, this is an issue. This is a hard issue. This is not one of these, oh, if I just make enough money, like Warren Sapp, then there won't be a problem, God. This is a hard issue. This is one of these things that wherever financial spot we're in, this is one of these that's important for us to, to, to wrestle with, to, to deal with. Here's another way that some scholars have translated the the, uh, passage we looked at earlier. Here's how it's translated in what's called the TNIV. Instead of using the language of treasures and and oil, which in our mind, a lot of time we're thinking the kind of stuff that turns into gasoline, this is how they would interpret it. Wise people store up choice food and olive oil. Fools, what do they do? They just, they gulp it all down. They don't have margin. Whatever comes in, they just consume it all. And that's what what folks tend to do. Now, it's interesting, if we could leave this on the the screen for just a second, it's interesting this passage does not say that the greedy store these things up. That's not what it says, does it? No. It doesn't say the rich are able to store these things up. Is that what it says? No. It doesn't say those who are lucky, lucky enough to... Whatever, have a job, lucky enough to win the lottery, lucky enough. It doesn't say the lucky store these things up. Who stores these things up? Say it out loud. The wise. Wise people do this. Wise people store these things up. And fools consume it all. Fools will live at the lifestyle limit. Fools will just consume everything that's coming in. Now, I was blessed to have wise parents. We didn't make Warren Sapp money. I, I don't know what my parents made growing up, but I know they didn't make 115000 a month. 
or a year or maybe two years or maybe three years. But they were wise. They were wise people. I grew up in a home where powdered milk, some of you heard of that before, powdered milk and government cheese were in our fridge um, often. Uh, I grew up in a home where hand-me-down clothing wasn't something we did because it was trendy or earth-friendly. It was something we did because that's what our budget allowed for. We didn't have a lot of money, but I had wise parents who lived within their means. They, they, they made good choices. They avoided debt. They put money into savings, and they gave generously to causes that mattered to God. And as a result, I was able to grow up in a home where I don't ever remember a financial-related fight breaking out. Now, maybe it happened behind closed doors, but we didn't live in a situation where, where we felt we were poor or we felt we were lower middle class or, or we ever felt worried about how we were going to pay the bills. What a blessing to grow up in that house. And, and as best we can, you know, Laura and I would hit and miss, but we try to teach our girls principles like that, God-honoring principles. And one of the things that we've done, we've drifted away. It's time for us to get back on track with that. But one of the things we did is we, we got them each three little piggy banks. And these aren't their piggy banks. They got little pink piggy banks. And one of them says share, one of them says save, and one of them says spend. And we try, when we give them an allowance or we give them money, we try to say, okay, first and foremost, at least 10% goes into the share, meaning it's going to give. It's going to go to purposes that, that, that matter to God. So we first and foremost have them put their little dimes in there. And then the next one we say, the next one we physically have them put their money in is, is the save bank. And that's long-term savings. That's not saving up for a new toy. That's saving up for, for something long-term. And then the last one they put the money into is the spend. And that's the order we try to teach, and I believe that's the God-honoring order. Order, save, share, and then spend. Now, is that hard? Yes. Yes. In fact, we fall out of the habit all the time. It, it is a hard thing to do. And one of the reasons it's hard is that it's not normal. It is not something that our, our culture as a whole, yep, there's people out there writing books and doing workshops and stuff. But as a whole, our culture does a horrible job of this. Our culture actually tries to get us to put this one first, to put spend first. Our, our culture works really hard at it, and they're doing a great job. Here's some of the statistics I looked up, and you may have seen one slightly different to, than this, but this is in the ballpark of, of all the stuff I saw. In America, one in three households have no savings. One in three households have no savings. Uh, in America, the average credit card balance is about $10,000. In America, the average college senior, this is from 2010, I believe, the average college senior graduates with more than $25,000 in student loans. And then this one's, uh, um, well, it is what it is. Let's take a look at it. While the average mortgage debt is $200,000. The average median price of a home is what? 107. That one hits close to, close to home, no pun intended. This is normal. And if you find yourself here, it is not by accident. There are folks working really, really hard to get you to spend like this. Uh, I looked a little bit at some stuff surrounding credit cards. They're just one. This is not talking about all the advertising that goes on out there to buy, consume, all this kind of, just some credit card company stats. Look at this. The MasterCard, Visa, American Express, and Discover, they will spend a combined $567 billion this year alone. And that year was 2003. That's when this book came out, where I got it from. So 
almost 10 years ago, they spent a combined $567 billion in advertising. And get this, colleges, they can earn $50,000 to $100,000 per year just to allow a credit card company to operate on their campus. When Emma, when our Emma, I should have brought it with me, when our Emma was, I think, two years old, she, had, she got a credit card uh, thing in the mail. I'm sure it was a mistake, but it just it shows they're working really, really hard. They're doing a great job at it, too. They're doing a great job at getting us to live at our lifestyle limits. Now, this is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Here's one little quote I found that within it quotes five different Bible verses. Take a look at this, so it's a good summary. This is by Richard Swenson. He wrote a book called Margin. I encourage everybody to read this book. He summarizes a Bible teaching by, Bible teachings by saying this, Let no debt, he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love to one another. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 13.8, God doesn't prohibit borrowing, ex- uh, explains Larry Bouquet, but he certainly does discourage it. In fact, every biblical reference to debt is negative. Why? Because as Proverbs explains, the borrower is the servant to the lender. After God paid so dearly to free us, he would prefer we not become slaves again except to righteousness. You know, I, I've, I've never been able to count them all, but I've heard people say there are more Bible references to money and possessions than there are about heaven and hell combined. And as I read through the scriptures, that seems to be the case. This is something that is very much on, on God's heart. So what we're going to look at today with the time we have left is we're going to look at one instruction that the Bible provides and then something that I, two things that I believe the Bible implies. So the first category, category we're going to look at is instruction. And I, I separated those two words. It's, it's much easier to find the one thing that the Bible instructs than it is to, to say that specific things on these others are instruction. They're more implied. So let's look first at what the Bible instructs. And there's a place to write this in your notes. I, I believe the Bible clearly instructs us to present tithes and offerings first. When it comes to what do you do with money, I believe the Bible is clear in its instruction that says, give to God first. Give, excuse me, give to God first. The Bible says you can't serve both God and money. And it was interesting, when Jesus saw a, a rich man, and we've talked about this rich man many times, we, this rich man was living a moral life. He was obeying commandments, at least as, as best he, he thought he, he could. But Jesus looked at him, and, and we, what we haven't emphasized enough is what it says in Mark's rendering of this, this account. Mark says Jesus looked at that man, and he loved him. He loved him. He looked at this rich young man, and he loved him. And as a result of that great love he had, he said, okay, this one thing you lack, this one thing you lack, you say you're keeping all the commandments, this one thing you lack, give away all you have. Give it all away, and come follow me. And that rich man went away sad because he had great possessions, it said. So, so Jesus loved this guy, and this guy who appeared to be living this moral life, this God on your life, he looked at him and he could see, okay, you say this, but really you're trying to serve two masters. You say there's no other God, but I just, you know, I'm, God is asking you to do this. The guy couldn't do it. Jesus loved him, and this guy walked away. And God cares about us too. You know, I, I can see a lot of your expressions right now, and that's good. Be honest right now. Let this sink in. God loves you. He wants to help. This is not meant to be guilt. Today is an invitation. It really is. If you're feeling I'm trying to just condemn or any of that kind of stuff, that's not the intent. This is an invitation from a God who loves and cares about you. 
Do you want more peace? Do you want more rest? Do you want things to be as they should be? Then will you trust God with this? Now, because um, talking about money, I'm, I'm straight up attacking a God that people, a little g God that many folks in America have, um, I wanted to not just take one or two passages and, 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 and that because you can easily manipulate one or two. So in your notes, if you love Bible, I've given you Bible today. Um, we have got references on the back page of your notes. On the back page of your notes, I have a whole section on biblical principles. And I tried my best to include, to show that this is all over the Bible. This is not just an Old Testament thing. I have Old Testament and New Testament. This is, a, a, I've got, and not just even within the Old Testament, I've got quotes from the Torah, or references from the Torah, from the Psalms, from the prophets, and from the New Testament. We've got from the Gospels, from Acts, from, uh, from Paul's letters. So these principles that, I, that I'm put there before you, we're not going to spend a lot of time. That's a, another teaching for another time to go into this. But this is, this is, all over the Bible, these, these principles. All right? And again, I tried to, to use words like precedence when it necessarily isn't a everyone should do this. I'm trying my best to, to, to be wise and God honored with, with my language. So real quickly, let me just read through these. And then the references are there so that you can go back and fact check this. There's an inherent conflict of interest anytime a preacher talks about money, right? So I encourage you to explore these and to read these and put them in context and look what it says before and after and, and open up study Bibles. But here are some principles with references that, that I think are, are, um, are biblical. The Bible teaches God is the source of all good things. The Bible teaches we are stewards who have been entrusted with God's resources. So that's another uh, principle. Here's a couple more. Presenting tithes and offerings is a mean by, means by which we demonstrate the sincerity of our faith. That's a hard one to swallow. And again, that's why I put a couple references there, including one I just talked about with this rich young man. That's one means, not the only one, not the only one, but one means by which we demonstrate the sincerity of our faith. We cannot serve God in money, the scripture says. Another principle from, number, from, from uh, or listed here is number four. We're, we are to offer God our first and our best. And this might sound contradictory, but we've, wrestled with that this before, you know, we're, we're to give both sacrificially and uh, uh, cheerfully. And so that's an interesting uh, paradox there. A um, couple more principles here when it comes to finances. God's people are instructed to invest specifically. Like if you're wondering, okay, well, what does is, what is God honoring giving look like? Here's, here's some of the examples in the scripture. God's people are instructed to invest in the ministry and mission of God's church. They are uh, to do it in ways that really help the poor and in a manner that reminds the giver that God is the source of all good things. If you ever feel guilty about going to Disney World, um, I'd encourage you to take a look at that passage, Deuteronomy 14, 24. That's, in my mind, that's my, my Disney World justification right there. All right, uh, but number six, um, biblical precedent also exists for stewardship that is regular and proportional. Some people say the Bible is, is, is this is where you can go and, and show that everyone should give every week with a specific um, percentage I think the precedent is there. I don't think that comes as much in the form of a command. But there, you can look at the passages and explore those for yourself. And then number seven that we've listed here, biblical precedent exists for investing in a community context. It's interesting to look at the scriptures and, and how often, instead of us just picking and choosing into, as individuals where we give, how, how much of an emphasis there is on us pooling together and investing 
as a community and in a community. All right, so, so there are some principles. And again, I, I tried to put scriptures with each one so you can take a look and, and wrestle with those yourself. But I do want to pause before we go further, just take a moment to speak directly to those of you who aren't believers or don't know me. You need to know this is a message that is as hard for me to give as it is for folks to hear. In part because you feel the conviction yourself, but also I don't like talking about money much because of all the conflicts of interest and all this kind of stuff. I don't like talking about it much. And if you are regulars here, you know we don't talk about money every week. We don't. We do our best to, 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 um, to talk about it, but not, not, not so much. In fact, if anything, we're guilty here of not spending as much time and as much emphasis as, as the Bible does. So although that's true, the reason we're, we're wrestling with these things, and we need to, is because I'd rather risk offending folks than not deal with teachings that the Bible has, especially in an issue where, where we don't reflect on this enough. So I wanted to put that out there. Um, the Bible says strong things. And it says strong things not only to us just as, as, as churchgoers, but it also says hard things to church leaders. In fact, it says if you love money, you are disqualified from church leadership. Disqualified if you're a lover of money. So the Bible says strong things. Well, one of the other reasons why it's hard to, to, to talk about these things is the reaction that you get anytime you bring up money. You know, and, and I remember real clearly one time I was, was speaking at a, at, in another s- situation and I was sharing about, about the poor and how it, it's just something we are to do as believers. We're to, to invest wisely into, into, into the lives of the poor. And I got this email, and it was anonymous, of course. And I got this email that was just, this was an angry young man. And this angry young man just blasts me. He's like, why in the world? Most of the people here, we're just a bunch of poor college students. Why in the world are you putting all these Bible verses out there about giving to the poor? We're poor college students. And, you know, I wish you'd put his name on there because I'd like to have that conversation. And, and one of the places I would start is poor college student. Do you realize what an oxymoron that is? In our world, in a world where two billion people live on less than two dollars a day, you're saying you're a poor college student. You know, it's this frame of reference that we, we just don't have. That guy needs to get out more. He needs to get out more. He needs to 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 expand beyond this little worldview that says if I don't have as much as Warren Sapp, then I'm not rich. Because if you have that mindset when you're a poor college student, you're going to still have that mindset if you have $115,000 a month coming in. Because there's always going to be someone that has more. And if I only, then I would. You know, I, I look at the scriptures, and this is something that was, I was reminded of as I was reading through these passages. One of the things I was reminded of that I never really thought about before was think about the audience to whom this message was given, this message of, tithing, giving 10%, and, and this. It was given to people who were just out of slavery. These were not wealthy people. These were people delivered from slavery into a desert wilderness. They wish they could have been poor college students, right? And so we have to just be careful. Our frame of reference is really skewed here. So when we start thinking, it, well, that applies to everyone else, look who it was given to. And then even think about the people in first century Palestine 
the, the people to whom Jesus reaffirmed the tithe and said remarkable things about giving, these were not wealthy people. These were people that, that were working hard just to have enough to survive. Many of, them then, many of them had one set of clothing, the clothing they were wearing. Many of them had just enough food you know, to get by. And then they were taxed crazy heavy. And so these were not wealthy people. And, and, and you see this in the examples that Jesus writes. Look at, look at one of the examples that's included here that Jesus highlights when it comes to this whole idea. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. This is in this temple area. And he watched people putting money into an offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. But, and a poor widow came. Poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples. He said, truly I say to you, this poor widow, she's put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, put in everything she had. All she had to live on. The average American Christian, this is a church-going Christian, if, if Pastor Craig Grishel is to be believed, um, the average Christian, who's a church-going person, uh, well, not the average, let me, let me get the stat right, the average Christian, um, uh, or the average, okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> well, there's a couple stats, and, and they both have kind of a, well, maybe, all right, because one of the stats is that one in five, one in five Christians um, who are church-going folks don't give anything. One in five church-going Christians don't give anything. And of those who do, the average range is between 1% and 3% of their income. So those are, those are, those are the stats. And, and is that right? Is that enough? I don't know. Because I can't go to the Bible. And one of the reasons you don't hear me telling you what percent you should give is because I can't go to the Bible and find a chart that, that, that says, okay, in this situation, here's the percentage you give. It's that Holy Spirit thing. It's that, that getting in touch with the Holy Spirit and, and being able to hear through directly the impressions God gives you on your mind and your heart as you talk with other people, as you pray together as a family. It, it's all of that. You can't go and find one chart where it says, everybody, here's what you should give. There are some that should give possibly less than 10%. I don't know, maybe. There's others who should give more. You know, So I can't tell you what percent to give. But what I can do is show these different examples that we see in the scriptures. We see a rich person who was asked to give everything. We see a poor uh, widow who, who trusted God first and foremost. And I think that's what we see. Are you putting God first? Are you really putting him first? Or does he get your leftovers after you're done spending? I mean, my conviction gauge for myself, anytime my giving starts to drop below 10%, my conviction gauge starts going up. I don't know um, what, it, what your situation is. But, but here's the thing that I can say with conviction. Uh, this is the share. This is the gift to God. This belongs here, up on the altar. It, God, I, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to put you first. And first and foremost, before I do anything else with finances, first and foremost, I'm going to wrestle with this. And the amount that I believe you're telling me to give, I will give. That's the starting point. And some of you might go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about margin today. We just spent most of the time, we only have a couple minutes left, we spent most of the time talking about now a giving thing. Giving is not, like spending, that's not how you get margin. Margin is in the saving. Well, the thing I'm convicted of, this determines everything else. This, is, this determines your starting point. This is where you begin. You say, okay, God, everything is yours. What percentage 
or what amount would you have me give back to you? Then that determines the rest. The word of God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In light of what, what Jill was sharing earlier about the Holy Spirit, the Bible says we can resist the Holy Spirit. And good luck trying to save the right amounts or, or, or know how to, how to do that if you're not trusting him first and foremost with what he says first and foremost. The clear instruction he gives, and that is to give to him first before you do anything else. Now, once you've established that, then we come to the next. And I'm not spending as much time on these because I think with most Americans, one of the reasons we struggle with margin is we don't put God first. And we don't ask him to be Lord of our finances. If you don't do that, you can, you can juggle these things back and forth. And you can make a lot of money, but you can still be poor. So, so here's what the scripture says after the instruction. Here's what I believe is an implication. I believe the Bible implies then that savings comes next and spending comes last. This one isn't as easy to, to demonstrate through the scriptures. That's why I put implies. You can't find a verse, you know, you have to stretch it a little bit. A verse that says, thou shalt save before thou spends. But I believe that's implied. That when you then set up your budget with what remains after you've said, okay, God, this is all yours. Here's what I give to you. What, with what remains, I believe you should do this one next. Save. Save. And that's the marginal. Save next. Right off the top before you do anything else. For me, I need to lock that one in. For me, what I've had to do when it comes to the saving is I've had to physically set up automatic withdrawal so that it doesn't get to my checking account. I, I, I used to try to budget and track. I can't track and budget every, every expense anymore. It's too many moving parts in our family. So what I've done is I've just, just take it directly out. Directly as it comes in, directly goes into savings. And that way, okay, here's what we've got left. Let's make this work. And if we miss a little bit here and there, we have a little savings that we can can draw from. Now, when, when you get to these two, just as you put that on the altar, ultimately what you want to do also is you want to put these up here too. Because there are some folks that maybe are saving too much. Possibly. And, and it's become more of a, an obsession or a greed thing or something like that. That might be possible. I don't know. It should be up here. And then when it comes to spending, it's not as though you say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with this amount of, of offering and now I'm going to spend on whatever I want. I mean, we're still stewards, right? We're still stewards. I, because the majority of our family income comes from tithes and offerings, I, I, I feel the weight of that at different times. And I think, well, obviously I'm not going to go out and rent Saw 8 in 3D, you know, or American Pie 12. I'm not going to do that. That's not a God-honoring investment of, of, of the money. But then every once in a while the Holy Spirit whispers to me and says, you know what, it's not just you. This is something you need to share with folks, because that money is holy. The money you have is holy. It's money that God has entrusted you with. And so it, it's no real different between our household and yours. Whatever comes in, spend it in God-honoring ways. Spend it in God-honoring ways. Don't just spend it on anything. Spend it in God-honoring ways. All right. And, and here's, a, here's kind of a summary verse that, that, that wraps up where we just talked about, and then I want to close with a quick story uh, or two quick accounts. Um, here's, here's a great summary, Proverbs 21.5. Good planning and hard work, they lead to prosperity. Good planning, hard work, lead to prosperity. Hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. And that's true just financially, but it's also true when it comes to a spiritual relational poverty. If you're taking those shortcuts, you may appear to be living at, at the the limit of, of, of what you could, 
but you could really be bankrupting yourself, your family. And I was reminded of two families as I, as I thought about these things. I remember one time driving up to this house, and at that time it was probably the nicest house I'd ever seen. Um, it was many years ago, and I remember driving up to this house, and, and it was in a probably a second, second or third tier suburb, and, and, and the whole neighborhood was gorgeous, and I, I pulled into this, this, this place, and it looked like it was cover of a magazine. Lawn was just perfect. Nothing was out of place. Beautiful, large garage with really nice cars in it. And then you walk up to the house, and, and the, the foyer, you walk into the place. It was just gorgeous, you know, absolutely stunning. And then as you, you moved into the kitchen, I was there for a confirmation open house. And I went in, and, and the kitchen, it was just spectacular. I felt like I was at a buffet at a five-star, you know, hotel or something. There were, not that I've ever been to a buffet in a five-star hotel, but could have been like this. And they're just be- wonderful breads and fruits, and everything was so decorative. And I remember at the time going, I probably, I probably can't, this is probably my year's worth of food right here, you know, what I would spend for a year, just right here. Wow, you guys, you're really going all out. And, and so there was, there, was, there was that. And maybe one of the reasons why I remember this house so vividly is this is the same family who was requesting scholarships for their teens. Um, one of the families, because we would always be at a policy at, at, at my church where anytime we would offer an event to teens, and this is a policy we want to have here too, anytime we offer an event for teens, we'll get you there. We won't let money keep you. We won't just dangle something in front of your face and say, well, if you had the money, you could come, you know? And so we'd provide scholarships, and, and, and we didn't ask questions. You know, we just provided if people needed it. Well, this was a family that was always asking for scholarships, and as I got to know the family better, I realized this was a family in financial stress because they had all this. They had all this, but they were working crazy hours to keep up with it. And, and as a result of working those crazy hours, they weren't investing a whole lot of time in each other. They didn't have anything left to invest in each other. You know, the time margin and financial margin often are related. And so the, the marriage was feeling the stress. The kids were feeling the stress. And they were always just one paycheck away from, from losing it all. And then when their business went under, ooh, those were hard, hard times, hard times. So there's one family, one family that appeared to have it all, one family that appeared to be wealthy, one family that appeared to be living the life. And this is a family that professed and I believe had a sincere love for Jesus, sincere love for God. They wanted to follow him. But in this one area, in finances, this was an area they weren't being wise by biblical standards. So that's one family, one family. Well, then I think of another family, and I have a whole lot of families I could put in this category, I, I think of, of this one family where I, we used to go after church once in a while, after the services. And we go over to their house, and they were in a first-ring suburb, and, and, and their house was very modest, very, very modest. Detached garage, their yard, you could tell it was well-used, well-loved. They had the, the little fire pit, and they had chairs that did the job around that fire pit. Didn't all match and all that stuff, but they did the job. And there was, a, a, like, there was always some kind of net up there for you know, for volleyball or, or whatever, and, you know, some stuff out there. And then you'd, you'd go into the house, and the way you got into the house was there was kind of like a, it was like a kitchen slash dining area. That's where you entered the house, and, and it was really a humble thing, but uh, it rarely, I don't think I ever was there with a big meal, but we'd have like scrambled eggs and pancakes and bacon and stuff. But one of the things you could feel in that house, you could feel the margin. You could feel it. 
You could feel that this was a family that appre- they appreciated nice things. I know these, this family well. They appreciate nice things. But what they realized is we're not going to stretch our family for these nice things. And we'll get the nicest things we can, but we're going to do it within our means. And you know what? If we're sitting on a well-loved couch, many of you probably have well-loved couches. we got a well-loved couch, but it's a paid-for couch, right? It's not a couch that someone's going to take from us if we, we can't keep the bills. And we'd watch their little TV, but it was a paid-for little TV, not one that they were going to be paying for for the next six to eight months, right? And hoping they could make it before the interest kicks in. So, so hear me clearly. My point is not everybody move to a first-ring suburb, small house. That's not my point at all. My point is margin. Margin. And I believe that's God's point. Are you first and foremost letting, establishing what your amount is by saying, God, everything is yours. What would you have to give to you? And then after that, are you saying, God, now how much should we be saving? How much should we be saving? If you are a teenager or a kid, or the kids are all out of here, so tell the kids, save a lot. Save a lot. Unless you're in a situation where you're paying for food and clothing, you know, you should, 50% or more, save it for school, save it for the future, and live on the rest. If you're a young family just starting out where it's like, we got to just get food on the table, we got to, you know, whatever, then you know what? Your percentage of savings, do put something away, but it might be really small. You know, I don't know the situation, but, but go to God next, go to wise people and say, okay, what amount next? And then, lastly, Spend on God-honoring things. On God-honoring things. Here's uh, the last passage also from Proverbs I want to give you. This one is interesting. There, uh, wisdom here is personified. It's talking about wisdom, the wisdom of God, and it's using it in first-person language. But it's speaking of the wisdom of God here. It says, I love those. Speaking of wisdom, okay? I love those who love me. Wisdom loves those who love wisdom. And that wisdom is expressed, you know, as, as we'll see. Those who seek me, diligently find me. Seek wisdom, you're going to find it. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth. Enduring wealth. And righteousness. Righteousness just means right living. Living the way you should. My fruit is better than gold. Even fine gold. My yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness. The way things should be. In the paths of justice. Granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Well, the, the banks I found here, I found these at Target on the clearance aisle, and my, my, plan is, my plan was going in was to find three that matched, right? And just label them, you know? But I'm really glad that they only had two that matched. And I'm really glad because of how this, this looks here as we close the service. This, is the, this one's the shiny one, right? This is the one where your eyes go to. And spending, that's how it's going to be. You're always going to be drawn to put this one first. You know, because it's shiny, it's golden, it's, it's what, our, what our culture teaches us to do. But you notice the size difference? This is the runt. This is the runt. This does not make a good God. You know, you, you, you start putting this up here first and down here. It doesn't make a good God. Wealth doesn't make the same promises our God does. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Wealth will forsake you. Wealth is very, very fickle. Wealth does not deliver on its promises. Wealth, you can have all kinds of it and still feel empty. 
Wealth is the right. Wealth is the right. Don't, don't put it first. Don't put it down here. Surrender it to God. Surrender it to him. Let's, let's close in prayer. Would you please stand with me as we close our service today? Lord, um, we thank you again that you love us enough to say hard things. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that anything that I said, if I didn't use the language that, that you would use, Lord, I pray that you filter that out so that only your truth remains. So that people can't go home and said, oh, I'm mad because of this, but rather they can really wrestle with what your word says. And I would encourage people, Lord, we pray that your spirit would encourage them to go and, and to look at these things and wrestle with it. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd give them wisdom. Holy Spirit, speak to us. You know, how much should we give? How much should we save? How shall we spend? Lord, these are questions that we really need your help with, and, and we thank you that you desire to help us with them. So, Lord, whether it's directly speaking to their hearts and minds, whether it's speaking through wise counsel, whether it's speaking through, through small groups as they gather and maybe talk about these things or, or whatever, Lord, I pray that you will continue to give us peace, that we're doing what you're asking us to do, and then the peace that comes with living that kind of a life. So, Lord, bless us in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace. Seek and serve the Lord.